don't know if you've ever made a rash decision that you've immediately regretted, but a friend of mine did that recently. He was staying at a cabin in the mountains with his family, and after it had gotten dark, uh, they thought they heard a noise outside, and they figured it was a bear. And so my friend very bravely and boldly grabbed his flashlight, stepped out of the house to check it, uh, check it out and, and to, uh, to drive it away. That's virtuous. He's going to protect his family, you know, and show his kids how courageous he is. But once he stepped outside and the door shut behind him and he looked out into that inky blackness, it dawned on him. He's outside alone with a bear, immediately filled with self-regret. And needless to say, it didn't take him long to turn around and make his way back inside. Have you ever made a bold decision that in the moment felt right and then immediately you second-guessed it? That's where we find Abram in Genesis chapter 15. In the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 14, Abram has made a big, bold step for God. He's taken a stand. He has won a battle uh, to rescue his nephew Lot, an incredible military victory. He's also uh, fought a spiritual battle and had a spiritual victory as he looks at the king of Sodom in the face and says no to a very lucrative financial offer if he would just compromise. And Abram stood on conviction rather than compromise. He took a stand for God. So chapter 14, Abram is on the mountaintop. He's just had victory after victory. We look at the end of chapter 14 and we're kind of cheering for Abram in this moment. But then you come to chapter 15 and you find Abram full of doubt, filled with fear and second guessing. You, you see him questioning God in this chapter. You find him unsure of his future, you find him wondering when and how God will come through for him. And when I read Genesis 15, I see something that is true to life as a follower of Jesus, that, that you cannot live on the mountaintop. Sometimes you, you move from the mountain to the valley of despair. Sometimes you move from great confidence and you have great victory. And then immediately after that victory, you're, you're full of second guessing. Have you ever made a decision for God that then immediately after you just wonder, what have I just done? Anybody ever done that? You make a commitment. Okay, I'm going to follow you. Lord, I'm going to do this. And then you say, oh my goodness, what have I just gotten myself into? That's where we find Abram in chapter 15. So let's read the first few verses together. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, but I just want to read the first few verses as we begin and see what the Lord has for us today. When I don't know the when or the how. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, after these events, that's the events of chapter 14, the victory him saying no to the king of Sodom. After those events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Uh, your reward will be very great. Some of you have a translation that, that translates that a little more precisely. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, look at the contrast. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body 
will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able. And he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him, credited it to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, notice again the contrast, but Abram said, Lord God, how can I know? How can I know that I will possess it? So there it is. The text begins with God telling Abram not to be afraid. Now, why does God say that? Well, because Abram was afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, we're not told exactly in the text. It may be that Abram is second-guessing his decision to walk away from this lucrative offer from the king of Sodom. Here, Sodom, uh, the king of Sodom has made him a deal. If you'll give me back the people that you've won in battle, then I will make you very wealthy. You'll have all of your needs met. You'll have more than your needs met. You'll have abundance, and there will be incredible financial wealth that comes your way. You'll have it made, Abram, if you'll just compromise. And Abram, boldly, wisely, says, no, I, I will not be made wealthy by the king of Sodom. I'm going to trust the Lord. But have you ever made a decision to trust the Lord, and then immediately you're second-guessing, did I make the right choice? Maybe, maybe you turned down that job offer, that promotion. Maybe you looked at the money and you looked at the perks and it was very attractive, but you knew maybe it wasn't the right thing for you at that time. Maybe it wasn't right for your family. And so you, you said, no, I'm going to trust God. But maybe you second-guessed, did I make the right decision? So it might be second-guessing. It may be that Abram was doubting that God actually would come through and provide for him. I mean, he makes this great statement of faith in chapter 14. I serve the God who possesses heaven and earth. But have you ever said something that you know is true in your mind, but sometimes your heart worries and doubts a little bit about whether it actually is true? We call this cognitive dissonance. <laughs> you hold like these two seemingly opposing truths in your mind, and it's like, I believe God, but I'm really struggling to believe God. You remember the man in the New Testament who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? How can those, that's cognitive dissonance. The Psalms are full of these, right? Uh, declarations of confidence in God and also, God, where are you? How long are, are you abandoning me? I was talking about the Psalms with my son the other day. He said, yeah, it seems like there's contradictions in the Psalms sometimes. It's like people will say, well, how long, O oh Lord? And then they'll express confidence. It's like, that's the way the Psalms are written. It's written to express both of those things because we feel both of those things. It's like, ah, my life. And then, yay, God. And we feel those, it's like this, this thing where we go back and forth in our own heart and mind. Yes, I'm confident in the Lord, but also I'm full of doubt. Maybe that's what Abram's experiencing here. Maybe he's fearful at this moment. I mean, he, he is fearful. God says, don't be afraid. That implies he's, he is afraid. Why, why could he be afraid? Well, just think about what he's just done in chapter 14. He has just defeated a coalition of four Mesopotamian kings. Maybe he's fearful that there will be reprisals for that. Maybe he's fearful that these kings will launch some kind of counterattack, that there will be some kind of military retaliation that will come into the land. Sometimes we make 
a bold stand for God. Maybe we stand for what's right. Maybe we take a stand against ungodliness and then we experience fear. What's gonna happen to me? I just took a bold stand for Christ at work. Is there gonna be any consequence to that? Are there gonna be some kind of reprisals that come my way? It's very difficult to be a Christian in our day and time, in our culture. Maybe we are fearful of what might happen if we take a stand for God. That might be what's going on with Abram. So there are, there are fears, there's doubts, there's second guessing. guessing. A- Abram is also questioning in these verses. Do you notice the questions he asks in verses two and three? Lord, what can you give me since I'm childless? Will, will an heir of my house be a servant, Eleazar of Damascus? You haven't given me offspring, so how's this gonna happen? And then down in verse uh, eight, how can I know? How can I know? So Abram is just full of these questions for God. He, he's, he's wondering when and how. God, God has made a promise to him in chapter 12 to bless him, to give him a place, a land, to give him a great nation. But by chapter 15, years later now, he's still not seen God come through in his promises. And the question he's got is when? You ever wondered when God would come through? How God would come through, right? How am I supposed to have a great nation, God? You promised me these descendants. I don't even have one child. And my wife is past the age of bearing children. He's saying, God, when is this going to happen? And how is this going to happen? Abram assumes that maybe this great nation is going to come through a servant in his household by the name of Eleazar of Damascus. He's a Syrian. It was common in that day if you had a servant that grew up in your house, maybe born under your roof, raised uh, in your household, and if you didn't have children, it would have been common to adopt that servant and make them the inheritor upon your death. And so that's what Abram is wondering. Okay, well, maybe this great nation is not going to come from my own biological child. Maybe I'm supposed to adopt Eleazar, and he'll be the heir of my house. And then then he, he wonders about knowing God, how can I know? How can I have assurance? Someone has said that this section amounts to a lament. That there's a kind of grieving on Abram's part here that God hasn't delivered on his promises. That he hasn't shown up on time. I don't know if you've ever felt that. That can be a lonely place to wonder Where is God? When is he going to come through? How is all of this going to work? There's maybe even a sense of accusation and frustration on Abram's part. You haven't given me offspring. It's like Mary and Martha. You remember when their brother Lazarus was sick and word gets to Jesus and there's great hope. Jesus has heard our brother's sick. He's going to come right away. He's going to heal our brother. We know he can do it. And then what does Jesus do? He waits. He waits so long that Lazarus dies. And then when he finally shows up, Mary and Martha, you remember they're accusing, they're pointing fingers. Jesus, if you had just shown up, this would not have happened. Have you ever felt that in your life? Jesus, if you had just shown up, we know you could have done something, but you didn't do something. There's a sense of frustration and accusation in Abram's heart in these verses. And we can feel this as well. God, why haven't you given me children? Why haven't you given me a spouse? God, God, when will things come together for me? When, when will I get an answer? When will things get better? 
When will my life seem to make sense? God, what about that whole thing of you love me and have a wonderful plan for my life? It doesn't feel like you love me. It doesn't feel like you have a wonderful plan for my life. When? How? That's where Abram's at in these verses. So how does God respond to Abram in this? In the face of fear and doubt and second guessing and questioning, God does two things. He reminds Abram of his goodness and then he reassures him of his promise. And he'll do those two things for you and I as well. If you're in a place where you're second-guessing God, maybe you've made a bold step for him, and now you're wondering, did you, did you do the right thing? Or maybe you're fearful, you're not sure the when in your life, you're not sure the how in your life. You, you need, you're desperate for God to show up, and, and it's not looking like he's coming on your timetable, and you've got these questions and these doubts and these fears. God can remind you today of his goodness. He can reassure you of his promise. The first thing that he does is he reminds Abram of his goodness. That's what we see in the first seven verses. Sometimes when we, sometimes when we doubt and when we're fearful and when we second guess, we just need reminding that God is good. Amen? We need to be reminded that God is good. And I want you to notice four statements that God makes to Abram to remind him fundamentally of God's goodness. First of all, he says to Abram, Abram, you're fearful, you're doubting, you're second guessing, you're questioning. Abram, I am your protection. That's the first thing he says to him. I am your protection. Look again at verse one. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Are you afraid, Abram? I'll be a shield to you. I am your protection. Now, the word for shield is a very unique word. Some of you have an older translation that says, I am your buckler. I, don't, I had to look up what a buckler was. A buckler is a particular kind of shield. It's, it's not primarily for defense. It's primarily for offense. It's an intentional word here. It's a shield for battle. It refers to a small round shield that you would wear on your arm as you were advancing into battle. And so the picture that God is making for us here of Abram is he's saying, listen, I'm wanting you to continue to advance. Abram, I'm wanting you to continue to move forward. And as you go to battle, I will be your shield. I will be your buckler. I will be your protection. God could have said, Abram, I'm your wall. Hide behind me. He could have said, Abram, I'll be your moat to keep the bad guys out. He doesn't say that. He could have said, Abram, you know, you're going to hunker down and not go out and I'll shelter you. But God's design for Abram is not that he shrink back in fear and sort of hide in a tornado shelter of God's protection, hoping that the danger will pass him by. But rather what God is saying is that in the battle, in the midst of war, as Abram is advancing and going on offense and doing risky things for God, that in that God will protect him. I mean, Abram is no shrinking violet here. He, he is just mounted an incredible offensive in Genesis chapter 14 against a vastly superior force, a coalition of four Mesopotamian armies. Mesopotamia, this is the area from which all of the great world-conquering empires of the ancient world would come. Think Assyria and Babylon and Persia. These are bad dudes in Mesopotamia. And Abram has taken a vastly overmatched force of 318 men, and he has driven them out of the land. He's conducted a surprise night attack. He's driven them from the south to the north in Dan, all the way out through Damascus, even north of, of Canaan. 
He is no shrinking violet. Uh, Abram is a bad, bad man. That's the original Hebrew. He, he has just won an amazing battle. But now, he's full of fear. Again, that cognitive dissonance. How, how can those two things go together at the same time? Well, it's just a mystery of being human. That you can be bold for God and brave for God and courageous for God and at the same time instantaneously be full of fear. And God says to him in that moment, Abram, you're going to be tempted to pull back. Abram, you're going to be tempted to maybe to go home, back to Haran or back to Ur. Don't, 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 don't do that. I, I'm going to be your shield on offense. Abram, I want you to continue to advance. Abram, I want you to take the land. I am calling you to fight. And as you continue to fight the battles, I'll be your shield in battle. I will protect you. He's reminding him here, even in the language that he uses, of his past faithfulness. He uses the word for shield here. It's magain in Hebrew. He uses a very similar word in the previous chapter when Melchizedek comes to Abram. After Abram wins this battle, the, high, the, the priest, king, Melchizedek comes to him and blesses him. And he says, God is the one who has delivered, delivered your enemies to you. It's migain, delivered. What God is saying to him is here, don't forget, I migained you. I delivered your enemies over to you. And I will magain you. I will shield you. I will protect you. I've, I was faithful to you yesterday. I'll be faithful to you today. I'll be faithful to you tomorrow. The same God who delivered you yesterday is the God who will be a shield for you tomorrow. God is good. Amen? He is our protection. But not only does he say, I'm your protection, he also says, I am your prize, Abram. Verse 1, again, I am your shield, your very great reward. Some of you have a translation that says, your reward will be very great. Others, you a little more precise. I am your very great reward. Here's what God is saying to Abram. Are you worried that you missed out on something by saying no to the king of Sodom? I mean, Sodom has offered you this incredible financial deal, all of this wealth, and you said no to it. And now, you know, it's the fear of missing out. Now you're worried. Maybe you missed out on something. Well, listen, I'm your prize, Abram. You said no to the world, and instead you get me. Literally in Hebrew, I am your wages. Abram, you turned down this offer from Sodom. You turned down this wealthy, lucrative deal. And as a result, God says, I myself will be your reward. Far better than the riches of Sodom is the God who possesses everything in heaven and everything on earth. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the hills as well. I was talking with Tina Zachary this week, and she said, you know, he really owns all the cattle and all the hills. He, he owns all the kingdoms of this world. It's far better to know God and to have God as your reward than any kind of earthly prize that could be offered to you by a wicked king. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that we would know the wealth of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. What is, what is the inheritance? What is the reward? What is the prize? Listen to me, church. Nothing less than God himself. God says to Abram, you may not have gotten the wealth of Sodom, but you get something much more beautiful. You get something much more immense. You get something much more deeply satisfying to your soul. You get something much more glorious you get me. I will be your reward. God is good. 
He's our protection. He is our prize. Look at the third thing that he says. He says, I will provide. I will provide. Verses two through four, Abram's asking these questions. Well, what about, what about this promise you've made me? You've not even given me a child. How's this gonna happen? You've given me no offspring. How are you going to come through? And what does God say? I'm gonna provide for you. Not, not through some servant that lives in your house. God's very clear. He's explicit about this. It's not gonna be from a servant that you adopt. That's not gonna be through whom the, the nation will come. What does he say in verse four? One who comes from your own body will be your heir. This, folks, this is impossible. God is promising an impossible promise here. What he's saying is, literally in Hebrew, one who comes from your loins, okay? That's about as specific as you can get. God is saying to Abram, I'm gonna keep my promise by providing a child that comes from you. I will do something miraculous. I will do something that makes no human sense. I am going to provide one who comes from your own body who will be your heir. Yes, you are past the years of childbearing. Yes, your wife is too old to have children, but I'm gonna intervene. And God would miraculously, powerfully open up Sarah's closed womb and give Abram the promised son because he is a provider. Listen, you, you can mark this down. God's provision is always in proportion to God's power. Can you say amen to that? His provision is always in proportion to his power. He's promising here to provide something that makes no human sense and that cannot be done with human power. There's nothing that Abram could do to make his wife have a baby. There's nothing at all in human strength that could be done. But God is saying, I'm gonna provide for you and my provision will be in proportion to my power. You may not understand how God is going to come through. You may not understand how God is going to make something happen, but the one who spoke the world into existence can provide for you. Listen, if the God of the universe can, can take things that were not and speak them into being, he can provide for you. Look at the God who can take things that were not and make them to be by the power of his spoken word can open up a closed womb for Abram. Think about all the examples in the Old Testament where God miraculously intervenes and makes a way where there is no way. Think about Moses and the Israelites when they are wondering how God would make a way when they faced the Red Sea with the Egyptian army in hot pursuit and yet God made a way because his provision is in proportion to his power. Think about Daniel who took a stand for the Lord and, and, and would not stop praying and, and uh, was thrown into the, the lion's den and wondering how he was gonna survive. And yet, because God's provision is in proportion to his power, God powerfully, miraculously stopped the, 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 the mouths of the lions and he delivered Daniel. Think, think about Mary when she got word from the angel of the Lord that she would give birth to the Messiah, and she wonders, how can this happen? She hadn't been intimate with Joseph yet. But God made a way because his provision is in proportion to his power. Think about Paul and Silas 
who were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel and their lives were on the line and they wondered how would they be spared? But God miraculously, supernaturally intervened and opened the prison doors and shut the guards' eyes because God's provision is in proportion to his power. And Abram was full of doubts and fears and second guesses and questions. When is this gonna happen? How is this gonna happen? And God makes it explicitly clear, I will provide because God is good. He will protect. He will be the prize. He will provide. But look, the fourth statement that he makes, Abram, I'm making a promise. How could Abram be so confident? Because God was making promises here. Look at verse five. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Which of course you can't, right? They're innumerable. That's the point. And then the Lord said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Look down at verse seven. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So think about what's in Abram's heart in this moment. He's saying, where's my child? You've not given me an heir. You've not given me a child. There's no offspring here. God, how are you gonna show up? And this is what God says to him. Not only does God make a, a promise to provide him with a son, one who will come from your loins, but he says that son will have sons. And, and those children will have children and there's gonna be a multiplication and, and look out at the starry sky and, and just like you can't count the stars in the sky, I am going to give you descendants like that that are innumerable. I, I'm going to give you not just an offspring, I am going to give you a nation. And not only am I gonna give you a nation, I'm gonna give you a land, I'm gonna give you a place not just a people, but a place, a home, somewhere to call your own. By the way, if you'll just flip on your news this afternoon, you'll see that God fulfilled that promise. And the Jewish people are innumerable. Lord multiplied and he has given them a, a land to call their own. This is a promise. Are you doubting, Abram, that I have your best in mind? I, I'm making a promise to you. I am going to do above and beyond what you're asking. I'm going to do above and beyond what you're even thinking. Not only will I give you a son, I'll give you a, a people as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give you this land to possess. Why? Because God is good. You know, often God will answer a much bigger prayer request than we have even asked. Here he makes a big promise to Abram because he's good. Now, Abram, how does he respond to this? Well, I know I skipped verse six. We're gonna come back to it, but I want you to see verse eight because verse eight shows you there's still something in Abram's heart where he's struggling, still struggling a bit. Look, verse eight, but he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? I hear your word. I hear your promise. I know, you, I know you've said you're gonna provide, but how can I know this? How can we know that God will keep his promises? Well, look at what happens next. In verses eight, through 21, God has reminded him of his goodness. I, I'm your shield, I'm your reward, I will provide a son, I will promise to give you a people and a land. But now in verse eight, God is going to reassure him of his promise. I think this says something about the kindness of God that uh, God is not impatient with Abram with this question. You know, I think I could be if I was in this situation, here I've just made promises and you know, I'm gonna be all these things for you, Abram. And then Abram's like, how can I know? You know, 
And God isn't impatient with him. He doesn't chide him. He doesn't rebuke him for the question. He, instead, he reassures him of his promise, which, which tells us something about the patience of God with us in our doubt, the kindness of God when we fear. You, you, should, you should understand God doesn't get annoyed with you ever. It's a good place for an amen. God, God is never annoyed with you, never annoyed with you. Uh, in fact, Jesus, in teaching his people how to pray, said that we ought to be like that annoying lady who kept knocking on her neighbor's door in the middle of the night. Jesus holds that up as a model for how we should come to him. Be annoying like that. And God will never be annoyed with you, but as a father and a friend, he'll respond to you. I'm so thankful that in this moment, with this question, God doesn't just smite Abram. He reassures him. God has spoken in verses 1 through 7. Verses 8 through 21, God is now going to give a symbol, okay, to reassure Abram of this promise. Now, let me just, before I read this, this is weird, and there's some weird things in your Bible, and it's tempting when you come to something weird in your Bible to skip it over. Let me discourage you from that. Read the weird stuff, okay? It's there in your Bible for a reason. All of Scripture is inspired and is profitable. So even the weird stuff, and there's usually some really great stuff in the weird stuff. So let's read this. It's a little unusual to our ears, but then I'll, we'll talk through it. He says, how, verse 8, how can I know? This is what, how can I know that I'll possess it? Here's what God says in verse 9. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, so we got barnyard animals here. So he brought all these to him, verse 10, and he cut them in half, and he laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. All right, this is, this is the weird part. So you got this little zoo, this little petting zoo of animals, goat and a cow and these animals, and Abram chops them all in half and lines them in two rows, and then he takes one of the birds, puts it on the one side, and one of the birds puts it on the other side. Verse 11, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And then as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. This story kind of gets even weirder. So he chops these animals up, lays them in two rows, scares some birds of prey away, and then takes a nap. And then suddenly awakes to great terror and darkness that was descending on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they'll return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. One day it will. I'll bring you into this land, and you'll drive the Amorites out. Verse 17, now when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Okay, so these animals cut in half, put into two rows. This pot of fire, this flaming torch appears and passes through the two rows of divided animals. And on that day, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring. From the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the 
land of the Kenites and Kenizzites and Cadmonites, the Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Okay, what's happening here? Well, God is clearly making a covenant, an agreement with Abram. That's what a covenant is. It's a sacred vow. It's a promise. It's an agreement between two parties. The word covenant literally means to cut. Sometimes you'll see in the Bible to cut a covenant. It means to make a covenant, make a promise. But it comes from this story right here. When God makes this solemn agreement with Abram, it involves the cutting of animals. They're divided into two rows. Now, what is God communicating in this act? This is obviously symbolic. It's It's a real event, but it's a symbol of something. It's a sign of something. I think there are at least three things that we ought to know. Number one, I think this symbol is to show us that God's promise is certain. Okay, that's the first thing you need to know. God's promise is certain. Remember the question that Abram asked, God, how can I know that I will possess it? And how does God respond? Did you see right there in verse 13, he says, know this for certain. The question, how can I know? God says, here's how you can know, and here's how you can be certain that you know. God wants Abram to have a certainty about his promises, and so this is what he does. He has Abram kill several animals, divides them into two rows, and then the Lord passes between the divided animals. Now, that is a strange thing for our modern ears to hear, but this was a common practice in the ancient world. If you lived during this time, this would not strike you as weird at all. This is customary. This is what you do when you sell your car to your neighbor. You, you, you ratify the agreement. You seal the deal. You, you make a statement that you're going to keep the promise. And the way that they would do that in the ancient world is to kill animals, divide it into two rows, and the two parties who had agreed would both walk through the rows of divided animals. Now, here's why they would do that. Here's what they were saying. Let it be like this to me if I fail to keep my end of the covenant. You gave me money for my car? Okay, let me be divided in half if I don't give you the car. I would rather be butchered like these animals then break my word. That's what you're saying when you cut these animals up and both parties walk through. It's a solemn ratification. It's a sealing of the deal. It's a commitment to say, may I first die rather than lie. Sealed in blood. So by having Abram cut these animals to enact this covenant was for God to say to Abram, I will sooner die than not keep my promises to you. This amounts to a self-curse. Kent Hughes says it was an acted-out curse, a divine self-imprecation guaranteeing that Abram's descendants would get the land or God would die. And you say, Pastor, hold up. Theological objection. You say, it's impossible for God to die. Bingo. It's also impossible for God to lie. And just as you can know that God can't die, you can also know that God won't lie. So this is about the certainty of God's promise. But secondly, this shows us that God's promise will not be fulfilled without opposition. This is not going to come easy. This fulfillment of the promise, this great nation that comes, this land that that they call home, it's not going to come 
without opposition. And that's what this whole section is in verses 11, 12 about the birds of prey. It's, it's a sign, it's a symbol here that, that in the same way that these birds of prey come and try to eat what God is doing, right? This covenant, that there's gonna be opposition. And what's the opposition? Well, you read about it in verses 13 through 16. It's a prophecy of what's gonna happen in the next book of your Bible, Exodus. It's a prophecy. God is saying, listen, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you, Abram, but it's not going to be easy. There, there's going to be an exile. There's going to be oppression. You will indeed get the land, but it will only be after a period of enslavement. He's saying to Abram, Abram, I will keep my promise, but it's not going to be easy. You know, saying is true for us, right? We have the great and very precious promises of God, but you know, we also have a life to live. And before the return of Christ, where all things are made new and his people live in his place, there's going to be opposition. There's, we're, we're strangers in exile. But hope is coming. Here you're saying the same thing to Abram. Listen, hope is coming. Hope is on its way. I'm going to keep my promises, but there's a period of exile you have to go through. It won't come without opposition. But then the third thing, this is so powerful, is that God is promising to bring this promise to completion himself and himself alone. God is saying to Abram, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this promise, and I'm also, I am going to be responsible to keep the promise. Abram, this is not something that you're going to do. This is something I'm going to do. Abram, you don't have to manipulate this. Abram, you don't have to take things into your own hands. Abram, you don't have to kind of make it happen, Captain. I'm going to do this. And you say, where are you getting that, Pastor? Well, a couple of places. First of all, notice verse 12, Abram falls asleep, the, ner- the, the nap, the nerp, the, the nap, What's that all about? Well, it's indicating something. This is not going to be because of Abram staying awake and making sure things get done. He's sleeping and God's still working. That's the way God works. It's the same word uh, used, by the way, when Abram, uh, excuse me, when Adam falls asleep and the Lord takes a rib and fashions Eve. God is working while we're sleeping. And, and here, it's God who's going to be the one doing this work. It's not going to be Abram. It's not going to be his resources, his strength. God would be the one to open Sarah's womb. God would go before Israel to bring them into the land. Notice also in verse 17, I told you that in the ancient world, when you'd cut a covenant like this, both parties would walk through between the rows because both parties are saying, we'll uphold our end of the deal or else death to us. But notice Abram does not walk through the divided animals. Instead, it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. What's this all about? Well, this is a theophany. Let's say that word together, theophany. Theophany is a visible manifestation of God's presence. God does this all the time in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God often will visibly manifest, particularly as fire, right? Think about it. When God appears to Moses, he appears to him in what? A burning bush. When Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God, what's happening on the top of Mount Sinai? There's smoke and there's fire. Uh, How about in uh, the Exodus, as he leads his people out, he leads them with a a cloud and a pillar of fire. You remember? How about in the New Testament? When the Holy Spirit descends on the early church on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down and visibly manifests as tongues of fire resting above the heads of the disciples, right? The book of Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. When you read about this fire pot and this flaming torch, this is God manifesting his presence. And notice, God himself 
is passing through these animals and God alone. In other words, the completion of this promise would be fulfilled by God. God was was signifying that if there was faithlessness to the covenant, it would be God himself who would incur covenant curses. This was a unilateral act. God is saying, I will do this. And if there's faithlessness, I'll take the consequences. This is a self-maledictory oath, a self-curse. If God failed to uphold his promise, he would take a curse. Now, here's what's shocking about this. Listen, church. The Bible says that God does take the curse of death. But here's the twist in the story. It's not because he was faithless to the covenant, but because we were. Our failure to keep covenant required death. And because right here in Genesis chapter 15, it is God and God alone who is passing through these divided animals He is promising to keep both sides of the covenant and take the consequences whether he fails or whether we do. Ray Vonderlaan puts it this way. He said, when God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have ever considered doing. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, says God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son Jesus. Ian Duguid says, by by what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could it have been displayed more vividly? The only way would have been for the figure, the symbol, to become reality. For the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abram. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus so that the guilty ones who placed their trust in him might experience the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and we might be his people. You remember God promises, I'm going to give you a people and a place. It is through Jesus that the people and the place happen. And that's what the covenant was all about. God is saying, I'm gonna do this for you. This is a work that you cannot do in your own strength. It's not something that your own righteousness can achieve. It's not something that your efforts, your moral do-gooding can accomplish. It's something that only I can do and I will take the curse myself even when you are faithless. What a reassurance. How does Abram respond to this? It's the same way we should respond. It's what someone has called the most important verse in your Bible. Certainly the most important verse in the Old Testament. It's what Steve Lawson calls the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's verse six, I skipped it. You You thought I skipped it. 
I was coming back the whole time. Look at verse 6. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. What does Abram do? He believed the Lord. What does the Lord do? Credits, to him, credits it. I'm having a hard time with my words this morning. Credit it, credits it <laughs> to him as righteousness. Now, you say, okay, is he believing the Lord or is he not believing the Lord? Yes. Cognitive dissonance, right? Holding two things at the same time. You have verse 6, he believed the Lord, and verse 8, how can I know? His faith is not perfect and neither is yours. And God's promises are not only for the people who have perfect faith because not a single one of us have perfect faith. Belief doesn't, doesn't mean that you never doubt. Belief doesn't mean that you don't ever have the, the dark night of the soul, as some have called it. There's a juxtaposition between verse 6 and verse 8. He believed the Lord. How can I know? Those two things sometimes go together. But what was clear in Abram's life is that he was going to trust God even, even if it was imperfect trust. Trust, that's what belief is, trust. Someone has said it means counting something dependable. Abram said, I'm going to trust what you've said. Folks, faith is when you don't know where and you don't know when and you don't know how, but you trust God anyway because you believe in his goodness and you've been reassured of his promise. Joel Gregory says that faith is when you go not knowing where. And when you wait not knowing when. And when you believe not knowing how. It's like ships in World War II. When ships would sail out from a port, they would leave port with a set of coordinates in a sealed envelope. Once they got on board, they pulled away from the dock, they would open up that envelope, they would get that set of coordinates, they would set sail for where those coordinates got, uh, told them to go. And when they got there and they arrived, they would open up a second set of coordinates and a second envelope, and they would open that up, and they would go to that next place. That was called sailing under sealed orders. Folks, that's faith. God, God calls Abram to leave Er, where, God? Uh, he, he doesn't know where he's going to end up, but he goes. God calls him to trust him, to keep his promise, even though Abram doesn't know when. God calls him to believe that he'll have descendants, even though Abram doesn't know how, that his wife is going to conceive. And yet Abram stepped forward, and he took one step of obedience after another. He went from this envelope to that envelope to the next envelope. That's faith. And God credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness means that he was accepted by God. It's beautiful. You want to be accepted by God? It's not something you earn or achieve. Being accepted by God is just a matter of trusting God with his promises. And here's what God will do. God will look you over and say, I find you acceptable. 
And even more than that, God will say, I'm pleased with you. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you have never made the decision to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk with you about how to do that. You can meet me down here at the front. I'll be staying around for a few moments after the service as people go out. You just come and meet me here. Lord, we, we know that a life of trust is an everyday decision to follow you, to take that next step, even though we don't know when or how you'll show up. So Lord, I pray that you would help us with that. Help us to walk with faith. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.